Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. The Technion Israel Institute of Technology is where some of Israel's brightest minds ask the biggest question of all. What if? What if they could take on the world's biggest challenges? What if they could develop life-changing environmental, scientific, health, medical, and technological discoveries that will make a huge impact on Israel and the planet? But they don't just ask the question, they answer it too. They turn those ideas into reality they make them happen. To see just some of the incredible things they've achieved, get the Technion Booklet of Wonders at ats.org wonders. We hope it inspires you to give them your support so they can keep doing what they do best. The American Technion Society. World-changing discoveries by Israel's brightest minds made possible by you. Hey listeners, it's Mishi. This week, we released our 50th wartime diary. Next week is Yom HaZikaron and Yom HaTzmaut. And as a way of marking this milestone, and these dates, Yochai Meital and I will have a series of onstage conversations in New York and Cleveland. We'll discuss the process of creating wartime diaries, talk about some of the challenges we've encountered, the dilemmas we've had, the insights we've gained, so if you want to hear what covering the evolving story of this war has been like for us, we'd love to see you at one of our events. All the details are on our site, israelstory.org. And meanwhile, wishing us all calm and peaceful days ahead. Next month, Eli Amir will be 80. He's one of Israel's most celebrated authors. He's received many prestigious literary prizes, has a bunch of honorary doctorates, and if they did their homework, almost every Israeli kid read at least one of his books. See, Eli's first novel, Tarnegol Kaparot, or Scapegoat in English, is assigned 10th grade reading. But despite all of that, he still doesn't feel totally at home here in Israel. I am newcomer. I am an outsider. I was not born in the country. And Hebrew is not my mother tongue. Whatever I do, whatever I learn, if you want to be honest with yourself, not to play games and to say, oh, of course, I am insider, the country is mine. No, no. I feel a bit outsider. A bit. As you can imagine, when Eli says he's a newcomer, that's more a state of mind than a fact. After all, he's been here 67 years. Eli was born in Baghdad. His name was Fuad Elias Nasich Khlasji. I came uh, to Israel at the age of uh, 12 and a couple of months. It was 1950. And like many other immigrants to the new country, the Khlaschis were sent to a Ma'abara, a refugee absorption or transition camp. And the life were terrible. We saw our father's figure walking around like um, shadow. They lost everything, their status, uh, their work, their money. And it hurt me very much, deeply. And I was very concerned. I am the oldest son in a family of nine. And I worried a lot about my father, about my family, about my sisters and brothers. 
he began to lose weight. And my grandmother said, in Arabic, it means let me go around you to save you. You lost so much weight. You look very worried. Your eyes are sad. It was decided that Eli would be sent to a kibbutz. To eat, to learn, to be in a different environment. Several months later, he got his chance. A delegation from Mishmara Emek, a Shomer Tzair kibbutz in the Jezreel Valley, came to the Ma'abara to recruit young immigrants. Their idea was to form a group of 40 of them, all from Iraq. Eli went to the interview. They asked me, what would you like to do in a kibbutz? I said, to work, to build the country. No, a Zionist uh, answer. Okay, of course they accepted me. Soon, Eli, who wasn't yet 13, left his family. Your brothers and sisters also went to kibbutzim, or they stayed in the Ma'abara? No, they stayed in the Ma'abara. And you can feel the differences between them and me. Eli says he'll never forget his first impression of the kibbutz. It was a total shock. You know, from the camps, we came to paradise, buildings, quiet afternoon. Everything is so clean, even the roads. And what astonished me is that I didn't hear any noise. It was the Schlafstunde hour at noon. And we were taken to houses. Oh my God, electricity. We haven't seen them for a couple of months in the Mabara. This was the beginning of a new life for Eli and his Iraqi friends. And the folks from the kibbutz made sure they understood that. The counselor came and he started to change our names on the spot. What's your name, Abdelaziz? From now your name is Benjamin. What's your name, Fawzia? From now you are Ilana. And the children started to spell their new names and it was no way to argue with the counselor. And he wanted to change my name. And I said, no, I would like to remain with my name. He said, why? I said, this is the name of my grandfather. And then he said, what your grandfather has to do with it? I said, it, it, it does do, Ken, it does. Everything that followed was new. We were taken at night, of course, to, to take shower. And we took shower with everybody in public. A total strange culture for me, for us. So I was very shy, and I made a shower with my underwear. And then we came to the dining room. For the first time in my life, we sit in the dining room. Everybody goes there and they see what you take to eat and how much you take to eat and how you eat and if you know how to hold the forks and this and that. And we were very shy. We didn't know what to do. It was there, in the middle of the dining room of Kibbutz Mishmara Emek, on a hot day of early summer, 1950, that Eli made a decision which, he says, changed the rest of his life. There is a say in Arabic that if you live with a different people for 40 days, you become one of them. So I wanted to become one of them. I decided on the spot that I will do everything that the kibbutz people and pioneers are doing. That same night, Eli vividly remembers nearly 70 years later, the Iraqi kids were invited to a party with the kibbutznikim. So I saw these girls with shorts, the girls of the kibbutz, because our girls did not go with shorts. So we lost our minds, you know. I lost my mind. Everyone was dancing the hora, and Eli felt this could be his moment. So I entered the circle to hold one of their girls' hand. 
And then another girl of our Iraqi group took courage and joined me. And then the third one, the fourth one. But the melting pot merriment didn't last long. The kibbutz girls and boys left the circle. So we found ourselves on the last circle, the outsider circles, dancing alone with ourselves. And we stood back. We just looked at them. You see, Eli and all the Iraqi kids were what was known as Yaldei Chutz, children from the outside world who came to the kibbutz without their parents. And as they painfully started to realize, no matter how hard they tried to blend in, they would always be Yaldei Chutz. I didn't know enough Hebrew. My accent was an Arabic accent till now. I could never become a Sabra. I could never dance the way they dance, to sing the song that they accustomed to sing, and to be part of their gathering, of their club, and belong to them. Kids are kids are kids, I guess. But here it was also wrapped up in a national ideology, one that had a very clear image of what it meant to be Israeli, and looked down on anything, and any one, who was different. They'd call the Iraqi newcomers names. This is a Arabush, a small Arab. And make fun of their background. To be told that your culture means the Arabic culture is nothing. There is no culture. And all the rubbish that they are saying and all the prejudice that they have, it was terrible. It hurts. Because we were told that by the elite of the country. And you cannot compete with the elite. You are not part of the elite, you know. And all these feelings and thoughts escort you on your life. Amazingly, Eli didn't let any of it break him. Quite the opposite, in fact. I wanted to assimilate, to be one of them. I was a very curious boy. And I was lucky that my bosses in the kibbutz were um, like fathers to me because they found out that I like them, that I admire them, and that I'm really curious to know who are they, why they came, what is their ideology. You know, till nowadays, I look up to that generation, and I admire them. I think we owe them everything we have in the country. Eli left Mishmara Emek three years later, in 1953. But it is like lifetime for me. Every moment was worth it. Every effort was worth it. Really. With all of the trouble. With all of the troubles and with all of the difficulties, And I think that uh, I am a very lucky person that, you know, my destiny brought me there. Yeah. It was astonishing for me. It was a miracle for me. And this is a miracle that built my personality as an Israeli. So, as you can hear, Eli still has mixed feelings about his kibbutz years. He was put down time and again as an outsider. But that outsider experience was, ironically, his ticket into the heart of Israeli society. Many years after that failed dance party, 
Eli started to write. His breakthrough novel, and a bunch of his other ones, too, tell stories of teenage Iraqi immigrants who, just like himself, left their families in the Ma'abara and moved to closed, elitist, and often unwelcoming kibbutzim. His books resonated with many people, and Eli became a famous author. At one point in 2006, there was even a grassroots campaign to elect him president. Eli still visits Mishmara Emek from time to time. He likes to sit down with the old-timers, the same boys and girls who used to call him in a rabush, and are now retired grandparents in their 80s. They welcome him with open arms, and Eli feels, at least for a brief moment, as if he's at home. Because in my soul, I am still kibbutznik. Hey, I'm Mishi Harman, and this is Israel Story. Israel Story is brought to you by PRX and is produced together with Tablet Magazine. Eli Amir was a Yeled Chutz in at least three different ways. He was a new immigrant to the state. He was an Arab Jew in a country that was dominated by the Ashkenazi culture. And he tried to fit in in one of the hardest cliques to enter the 1950s socialist kibbutz. He was, you could say, the ultimate outsider. But of course, there are a zillion ways of being an outsider. And in today's show, On the Outs, we'll explore two of them. Our first story delves into the world of intellectual peripheries, of what it means when your ideas are considered so far out that you start being discounted or discredited. And our second story goes into the heart of institutional art and the lengths to which people will go to leave, well, their mark. All right, let's begin. Act one, skipping the Torah. Here's Shlomo Meital. I don't understand the whole picture. Not at all. I only tell you, we have some drops of the ocean of information is going here. This I can tell you. No more than this. But this for sure. Did God, or whoever you believe authored the Bible, sprinkle it with secret messages? And are we just now starting to uncover their true meaning? This is a story about these questions, questions that have kept theologians, mathematicians, statisticians, journalists, and politicians very busy. But at the same time, this is also a story about a man, his faith, and the lengths to which he was willing to go to stand by his beliefs. My name is Eliyahu Rips. Actually, when I was born, I was Eliyahu Rips. I was born in Riga. Riga, the capital of Latvia, was then part of the Soviet Union. Today, Eliyahu is a professor of mathematics at Jerusalem's Hebrew University. He's also an ultra-Orthodox Jew. So picture him. He has a long white beard, pears or side locks, a wide-brimmed black hat, and some blackboard chalk powder on the left lapel of his jacket. Yes, apparently Hebrew University's math department still uses chalkboards. Our story begins way back when Eliyahu was still Ilya, a 20-year-old clean-shaven student in the mathematics department at the University of Latvia. In the beginning of 1968 began the so-called Spring of Prague. The Prague Spring was a brief period of cultural and political upheaval in Czechoslovakia, while the country was essentially a Soviet satellite. It began on January 5, 1968, when a local reformer, a guy by the name of Alexander Dubček, was elected to be the first secretary of the Communist Party of Czechoslovakia. Czechoslovakia has perhaps never experienced such a celebration, free and spontaneous. By the end of that summer, an alarmed Kremlin had sent Soviet troops to invade Czechoslovakia, putting a violent end to the democratic reforms. Ilya followed these dramatic unfolding events on his shortwave radio tuning into foreign broadcasts like The Voice of America and the BBC. (sighs) 
it was a very sad, very sad feeling, feeling of despair, of hopelessness, of being able to do nothing. Everything was gloomy. Young, passionate, and restless, Ilya decided that he couldn't just sit around moping. He felt he simply had to act. To express my protest about what is going on. So he prepared a makeshift banner and scribbled a fairly straightforward slogan on it. I protest against the occupation of Czechoslovakia. He then stuffed his coat and pant pockets with gasoline-soaked rags, walked over to the Freedom Statue in Riga's main square, unfolded his banner, and spread it out on the floor beside him. This was the most difficult thing I did in my life. This was a point of no return. Then he struck a match and set himself on fire. I remember the flame on his hand and on the neck, but then I don't remember. Just by chance, a group of sailors passing by saw him. They threw their heavy overcoats on him and extinguished the fire. When he regained consciousness, he was surrounded by strangers. Then a person came from this crowd and arrested me. They brought me first to the interior ministry, then to the KGB. Were you happy to find that you were still alive? How, how did you feel about your plan failing? You see, um, the fear disappeared. Ilya was thrown in jail, interrogated, and charged with crimes of anti-Soviet behavior. But he wasn't found guilty at his trial. Instead, he was simply proclaimed insane and consigned to a closed psychiatric ward. At this time, the preferred tactics of the regime was to present people protesting are insane. And actually, it could be for indefinite number of years... Fortunately for him, he had some admirers among the psych ward staff, people who secretly supported his protest and viewed him as a hero. He discovered this the very first morning when he woke up to find... Under my pillow, the finest kind of sukaria, Misha Kosolapuhi, the most expensive candy that you have in the Soviet Union. A piece of candy just laying there. But even more significant was the pencil that was placed right next to it. He took that pencil and wasted no time getting back to his favorite pastime, solving math problems. On toilet paper. Yes, on squares of toilet paper in the psych ward, believe it or not, he managed to refute a famous solution to the dimension subgroup conjecture, a problem that had baffled mathematicians around the world for decades. It didn't take long before word of Ilya's discovery reached the Western scientific community. The mystique surrounding a young and brilliant mathematician stuck in a Soviet psychiatric ward grew. Soon, an international lobby began to fight for his release. The Russians did not like to have an embarrassment, so it turned out that my condition suddenly improved. The institution sent me home. But he knew he could never fully be safe behind the Iron Curtain, so after some more pressure, Ily and his family managed to obtain visas and... In the January 72, we were here in Israel. Math had literally saved Ilya from the clutches of the Soviet psych ward, but it would ultimately lead him, as unlikely as that sounds, to even darker corners. At just 23, with the eyes of the mathematical world fixed upon him, Ilya, now Eliyahu, enrolled in the Hebrew University, where he quickly finished his PhD. And then I was accepted to the staff, and I'm, since then I'm working here. Eliyahu settled down, and everything seemed to be going his way. He got married, had kids, and spent his days teaching math. In yet another break with his Soviet past, he was also becoming increasingly religious and began attending a daily minyan, or morning prayers. It was a mundane lifestyle, really, that is, apart from being a rock star in the combinatorial group theory scene. Then, one day, as he was praying in a small synagogue in Ramatgan, he stumbled upon a little book. It was a compilation of drashot, or sermons, given by Rabbi Michael Bear Weismandl, a Slovakian Holocaust survivor, to his congregants. As Eliyahu perused it, 
he came across a few pages in which they recollected what he told them about his findings of skipping the Torah with equal intervals. And of course, we all understand he did it without a computer. And, 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 and this is just a spark of the genius. Let me explain this whole skipping the Torah with equal intervals business. Suppose you pick a text, Harry Potter, for example. Now, erase all the punctuation marks and the spaces between the words, and you end up with a very long list of letters. Then, select a certain number, let's say seven. Circle the seventh letter of the text, skip seven again. Circle the 14th letter, skip seven again. Circle the 21st, and so on. Finally, check to see if anything meaningful emerges from all the circle letters. That's exactly what Rabbi Weismandel did, and he detected what seemed to him to be messages that could not occur by chance. As he was reading about this at Shul that day, Eliyahu thought to himself that it would be an interesting experiment to take Rabbi Weismandel's work and try to prove it mathematically. Now, it's important to Eliyahu that we clarify he wasn't looking for predictions just statistical anomalies. I looked for the first 13 letters in the book of Leviticus for the word Aaron. He wanted to check how many times that name, Aharon, the brother of Moses, appeared when skipping equal distances in Leviticus. I already knew that the mathematical expectation to find is 8.3 times, and it turned out that it was 25 times. So in case you didn't catch that, Aharon is supposed to occur 8.3 times, but in fact, Eliyahu found it occurred 25 times. The probability of that happening by accident, randomly, was nearly zero. Eliyahu was dumbfounded. Unforgettable moment. I became convinced that this could be studied by scientific means. Following that initial surprising find, Eliyahu went on to devise a more comprehensive experiment. He picked 34 prominent rabbis and checked how many times, using the equidistant letter-spacing method, their names showed up in the book of Genesis. He then compared that number to what he would have expected to find, statistically speaking. Separately, he also looked into whether the occurrence of those rabbis' names in the text happened to be next to a stretch of letters that corresponded to their dates of birth and death. Eliyahu and his two research partners, Doron Witzdum and Yoav Rosenberg, discovered uncanny correlations between the names and the dates. The math involved is extremely complicated, but the bottom line was that this was really, really unlikely. In any event, they wrote up their findings and submitted their paper to a well-respected journal called Statistical Science. I had the conviction that science looks impassionate, search for truth. The paper ended up on the desk of the journal's editor, Robert E. Cass, a famous statistics professor from Carnegie Mellon University in Pittsburgh. He was completely baffled. On the one hand, he didn't believe it for a second. The entire idea seemed utterly preposterous. But on the other hand, he couldn't find a single methodological or computational flaw in the draft of the article. Not knowing what else to do, he sent out the paper to independent peer reviewers. He was certain they would quickly point out the errors, debunk the argument, and then he could scrap it in good conscience. End of story. But the thing is, they couldn't. So Cass brought in his senior editors for a consultation. Here he is. One person in particular argued strongly against publication. He effectively predicted exactly what would happen. And I decided that um, for the benefit of the field of statistics, we should publish it. They published it quite unusually with a kind of editorial note at the beginning of that issue of the journal saying, you know, we published this as kind of a challenge to our readers. This finding seems bizarre. We don't really believe it. But, you know, we're scientists. This study was carried out in accordance with, like, usual practices. And so it wouldn't really be fair not to publish it. But just so you know, we think it's weird. That's Jordan Ellenberg. I'm a professor of mathematics here at the University of Wisconsin at Madison. Ellenberg, who devoted a whole chapter to Rips and the Bible Code in his latest book, How Not to Be Wrong, is actually the one who got us onto this whole saga. Back in 1994, when the article came out, Ellenberg was in graduate school. I mean, I think my initial reaction was the same as that of a lot of people, which was that something must be wrong with this. And Ellenberg wasn't alone. It became a huge craze in the United States, this idea that... um, 
that there were secret messages. I mean, people here in the U.S. are pretty interested in the Bible, as it is, as you know, and even more so, right, when there's kind of uh, fascinating secret messages which foretell the future. One of those who jumped on the Rips bandwagon was an American journalist by the name of Michael Drosnin. In 1997, he published a book titled The Bible Code, which took Eliyahu's statistical observations one crucial step further. I found in Code in the Bible a prediction of the assassination of Yitzhak Rabin a year before he was killed. This was precisely what Cass's editors had feared, that quasi-scientists and non-academics would take the finding they had published and run with it in all kinds of crazy directions. This is Drosnan talking to Charlie Rose on PBS. I immediately flew to Israel. I gave this in a letter to a close friend of the prime minister, a poet named Chaim Guri, who had known Rabin since childhood and won Israel's two top literary prizes. And I said, please give this to your friend. I don't know that he's in actual danger, but I do know that his assassination is very clearly encoded. And if I were him, I would take this very seriously because the Bible code also details the assassinations of both Kennedys and Anwar Sadat. Drosnan, quite simply, was using Eliyahu's methods, or at least his version of them, to predict the future, and his predictions were making the rounds. The media was loving it. Every major event in world history... And the general public was eating it up. ...history appears to be encoded in the Bible. Drosnan's book made the New York Times bestseller list, and even Oprah invited him to appear on her show. Stehen in der Bibel geheime Botschaften. A code that tells of events far into the future we might face the real Armageddon. La predicción del Armageddon en la Biblia. In all his media appearances, Drosnan made sure to mention that his book was based on a major publication, that is, Eliel Rips's article. While Drosnan's Bible code was selling like hotcakes, the scientific community was mortified. My favorite demonstration of that embarrassment comes from mathematician Dave Thomas, who worked hard to find his own secret message encoded in the Bible. The Bible code, it read, is a silly, dumb, fake, false, evil, nasty, dismal fraud and snake oil hoax. But while Drosnan could be dismissed as a crackpot, mathematicians around the world were still enthralled and confused by Eliyahu's seemingly rigorous and robust publication. One of them was all the way over in Canberra, Australia. Uh, I'm Brendan McKay. I'm just retired as a computer scientist at the Australian National University and I specialize in combinatorial mathematics and probability theory. When I first heard about these claims, I was excited because I've had as a sort of hobby the debunking of claims like this for a very long time. But because Rips is such an excellent mathematician and because the paper they published was written so carefully in order to not expose the weak points in their case, it was quite a difficult debunking task. McKay wasn't only intrigued, but also spurred to action. He spent a long time trying to refute Eliyahu's claims, and he didn't get very far. At the same time, and on the other side of the globe, a group of Eliyahu's own colleagues from the Hebrew University were also working on a rebuttal. They had heard of McKay's efforts and decided to give him a call. They said, Look, we're working on this too. Why don't you come to Israel? We'll work on it together. And that's how I got started. It took them three years, but eventually another paper appeared in the same journal, Statistical Science. The joint Aussie-Israeli team basically replicated Eliyahu's experiment with one major difference. The famous experiment of Rips and his co-workers compared names and dates of birth and death of famous rabbis from Jewish history in the text of Genesis. We did the same thing in the text of War and Peace and we proved, where the word proved is in quotation marks, that war and peace predicted these uh, correspondences between the rabbis and their dates of death. Basically, they showed that these statistical anomalies could exist in any long text, that the Bible did not, as many people thought Eliyahu's research had shown, contain a secret code. Almost overnight, Eliyahu went from being a well-respected member of the academic community to being a derided and ridiculed mathematician. We were buried. So it seemed. So it seemed. Now, while McKay and company merely claimed to uncover flaws in Eliyahu's scientific method, 
Others went so far as accusing him of intentionally falsifying the data by cherry-picking the names that came up with the best correlations. I would not have called him a charlatan. I would have not have called him a fake. I, don't, I didn't question his motives. It, it's just that it never surprised me that he got this wrong, or at least I think he got it wrong. That's Robert Cass, the journal's editor, once again. So I, I never thought that, you know, he was deliberately distorting things. That, that, that wasn't the point. The point was actually a more important one, because someone who really means well and believes in what they're doing can make a very basic mistake. This is really a con you can pull on yourself. Here's Jordan Ellenberg again. You can fool yourself without being a sort of evil person who's trying to fool other people. They wanted this to be true. That's the hardest kind of con to defeat, the one you run on yourself. Despite his tarnished reputation, Eliyahu still believes he's right and that he's onto something so big, so incredibly huge, that people have a hard time accepting it. Eliyahu thinks that the statistical anomalies he unearthed can only be explained by the fact that the Bible was written by God, a God who knows the future. But down here, in the terrestrial world of math and statistics departments, his claims have been regarded as somewhere between wrong and fraudulent. And this is, he says, an accusation more painful, more paralyzing than setting himself on fire. For the last 20 years, he's been trying to publish another paper, responding to the allegations leveled against him with further proof of his biblical correlations. The journal did not allow us to respond. So in principle, um, I think it would be uh, reasonable for them to absolutely to consider such a letter. Robert Cass is no longer the journal's editor, but he agreed to answer my hypothetical. I have to tell you, I have trouble imagining what he could say that would materially change anything. And the very fact that he continues to believe it, that's not publication worthy. In many ways, Eliyahu feels that this state of academic shame is worse than the Soviet prison or the closed psychiatric ward. I must say that somehow, maybe because then I was young, I didn't feel it scratched me. And here, this controversy was a real suffering. You see, there was a, a saying in the Soviet Union, to be in prison is difficult only for the first 10 years. I'm kind of the intellectual prison. Yes, I have to do what I can do, that's all. Still, despite the entire firestorm, Robert Cast doesn't regret publishing Eliyahu's paper. That's just how science and knowledge in general advance, he told me. People put their ideas out there, and others scrutinize them. Many new ideas will get shot down. But once in a while, an idea will stick and generate new ideas. Is society ultimately served by this process? Yes, it is. Because people will come to appreciate all of these subtleties. They will come to appreciate even better that it's hard to be sure or to be confident about patterns in complicated data and what they mean. And that's the ultimate lesson of the story, that there is subtlety there and you have to be very careful. But Eliyahu doesn't agree. For him, it's not about subtlety or an evolutionary process of natural selection of ideas. As far as he is concerned, it's a story of a misunderstood scientist who made an astounding discovery, one his peers were too scared or too reluctant to acknowledge. In the meantime, stuck in an academic limbo, Eliyahu continues to do the exact same thing that helped keep him sane back in the Soviet psych ward. Math. I met up with him a couple of times to record his story. And at the very end of our last interview, Eliyahu excitedly pulled out a thick binder from his briefcase and handed it to me. Here is some new thing that was done by Doron Wittstum. And curiously, I obtained this paper just this Friday. As he told me this, he had a big smile on his face and seemed almost radiant. Eliyahu and his longtime research partner, Doron Wittstum, had recently made some new discoveries. He had the following idea. It could, he said, be big. This is imp extremely important new data. It overturns the tables on this discussion. 
it surely deserves a major publication. At least you have found me at this point when I still did not lost the hope. Eliyahu Rips, you see, is far from giving up. Who knows? Let us hope. Shlomo Meital. Shlomo is a retired professor of economics at the Neeman Institute of the Technion in Haifa. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. If Eliyahu Rips still hopes to break in, to become an insider once more, he might find some inspiration from the hero of our next story. It's called The Guerrilla Artist and the Guard, and it's brought to you by our newest Israel Story producer, Zev Levi. Back in the 90s, Eliezer Sonnenschein from Haifa would routinely sneak into museums and art galleries. But he wasn't a thief or a vandal. He wasn't even trying to avoid paying the entry fee. You see, he thought he belonged there. With a ponytail and all the confidence that comes from being in your 20s, he was certain that... I'm very talented. Very talented. My mother says to me that I'm talented. Eliezer saw himself as a respectable artist and was convinced that museums should exhibit his work. He approached the who's who of curators and gallery owners, the gatekeepers of the art scene, and was promptly rejected. Without a degree in art, they didn't know him and weren't impressed. But Eliezer wasn't phased. Asking their permission was only one option. I'd looked at the museum as a space and a kind of a communication. That space, he thought, should be open to everyone, regardless of what the experts believed. One of the things I loved to do is to open the, the catalog that the museum send you and to see what new exhibitions are coming and to decide in what exhibition I will exhibit. So, one day in 1995, this self-proclaimed virtuoso quietly waltzed into someone else's exhibition at the Tel Aviv Museum of Art. He was armed with a concealed package. His heart was racing so fast he could barely think straight. He walked the halls alongside the unsuspecting public, hoping they couldn't hear the thumping inside his chest. And then, he saw his chance. In an unobserved flash, he crouched down and added a homemade piece of art to the collection. A glass bottle painted stark black, white, and red. From the first bottle that I laid down on the floor in the museum, I knew that in two years, I'm going to be much more bigger than that. Eliezer was high on adrenaline. He was actually exhibiting in the Tel Aviv Museum of Art. To bask in his glory, he returned the next day and checked on his piece. It was standing proud. He came back the day after, and the day after that, and the day after that. His bottle lay untouched, gathering dust on the floor by the wall. He wondered whether anyone had even seen it. Finally, one day, he saw it was gone. Eliezer breathed a sigh of relief. He knew exactly what to do. He called the museum and yelled at them. How dare they remove art from an art exhibition? Who were they to decide what belonged there? In no time at all, Eliezer retaliated. He planted a new bottle in the same place. This cycle was repeated several times, and each time Eliezer snuck in some of his work, he gained energy. He gained purpose. He gained direction, and he started hatching a bigger plan. A few days after a new show opened, Eliezer called the museum and impersonated the curator. As the curator, he told the museum staff that an important artist was coming in directly from Europe and that they shouldn't get in his way. 30 minutes later, Eliezer called again, this time as himself, that is, the important artist from Europe. He 
casually liaised with the staff about how they could help him arrange his artwork. Later that day, he was already drilling a hole in the museum wall and hanging up his art. When you were setting up your pieces, did you feel like you were forcing a place for yourself in the art world? It was my place already. Before too long, museum officials realised that they'd been hacked. I just got a call from the museum. That's Itamar Levy, the curator that Eliezer had impersonated. They asked me if a certain work is part of the exhibition which I had curated. And I said, no, it's not. What shall we do with it? I said, remove it. And uh, I didn't know uh, who put it there. I didn't know what it was about. I didn't give it a second thought. Itamar felt that his exhibition had been hijacked. You think when you position work in the museum about every detail, how it will look from every angle, what other artists will be in the background. You know, you have so many considerations and they suddenly, you know, they are the ones who suffer from this proximity to a work that was not invited. An irate Itamar immediately called the infiltrator. He was furious after he found out that I uh, planted my stuff in his exhibition. And he shouted, I'm doing shit and I'm a shit artist and all this stuff. Yeah, you are saboteur, you sabotage the authority of the museum. You can fool the museum, but the bottom line is that you want to join the party. Unsurprisingly, Eliezer's work was removed. Day after, I put another thing in the museum just to show them that it's my game. This time, it was a wad of bills made of plaster. To Eliezer, the whole episode was... Some kind of a dance that I'm doing with the museum. The museum was furious. I was great. They were playing to my hands. And Eliezer was just getting into the swing of things. As the dance of the guerrilla artist and the guards continued, word of his clandestine tactics and invasive approach began to spread. So they called me a terrorist. But it turned out that Eliezer had some sympathizers on the other side. Well, it's terror on a very symbolic level. This is Ellen Ginton, a curator at the Tel Aviv Museum of Art. Ellen remembers... Just strolling in the museum, as I used to do, and uh, there was a, an object, black, red and white, the beautiful robot. She was struck by the crude style and materials, by the aggressiveness of the piece. To her, the robot looked like... Outsider art. Outsider art. Art made by people who aren't members of the closed world and elite circles of art institutions. She says she didn't really know what the piece was, but she found it very interesting nonetheless. And the next day it was gone. I asked what was it, by whom was it, and I was told that somebody smuggled it in and planted it in the exhibition. And the curator didn't receive it well, and he asked for it to be removed, and it was removed and I never saw it again. Shortly afterwards, during one of Ellen's own exhibitions, she also got a call from museum security, just like Itamar had. I was called by our guards. Come, please, please do come. Uh, somebody left some shit in your exhibition. Those guards weren't just being vulgar. This time, Eliezer had dropped off sculptures of feces. And I ran downstairs to the exhibition and I saw beautiful sculptures on beautiful boxes with commercial logos, a Berilla pasta, Marlboro cigarettes, a black, white and red, very intensive red. Pieces of uh, shit, they were all made of plaster and I concealed them behind statues. They were very nice. And it was beautiful because you could see people walking and then looking behind the statue and starting to laugh and something like this. Just like many of the visitors, Ellen got a kick out of it. I thought that if the artist will identify himself, the sculptures remain, because it's beautiful and it's ingeniously placed. Alas, only months after he began his symbolic terrorism, Eliezer paid the ultimate price for being countercultural. The art world started embracing him. I got a phone from Ellen. I wasn't into calling her back because I didn't feel like being shouted again. And then I got a phone call from another friend that knew her and he told me, it's okay, call her. And I called her and she likes it and she put the real label, like the museum label. It felt like um, the new era had just came uh, flashing down. That was 1996. But being accepted by one good-natured curator by no means meant that Eliezer was now on the inside. 
Two exhibitionless years later, in 1998, Eliezer caught wind of an upcoming show, 90 Years of Israeli Art. That title really bothered him. How could a comprehensive history of Israeli art not include him? Eliezer decided it was time to take his guerrilla art tactics to the next level. The night of the grand opening, Eliezer milled around the museum, blending in with the swarm of guests. He waded through the crowd, making his way to the bathroom, where he transformed. He changed into clothes that were completely black. He donned a black face mask and assembled a four and a half foot long sculpture made of plaster and covered in product packaging and news media logos. The piece was an overload of black, white and red and had the shape of a rifle. The barrel bore the words Apologies to 90s supermodel Claudia Schiffer. Exiting the bathroom, the dense crowd scattered before him as if he was a disease. They weren't afraid, exactly. It was totally clear that his oversized gun was just a prop. But still, they all realized that something odd was going on. Imagine you're at a business meeting and someone dressed as Chewbacca walks in and sits down. It's not threatening. It's just bizarre and disturbing. Anyway, while the museum director addressed the packed room from a podium, Eliezer sidled up and stood directly behind him in full view of everyone. After the speech, Eliezer himself took the stage and stood there, holding his corporate rifle in the air. It may be difficult to understand why anyone would let this masked figure with a toy gun get on stage. An easier question may be who, at an art gallery, would want to get in his way. By the time a member of the Shabak, Israel's national security agency, whispered to him, hey buddy, You're making the organizers nervous. Eliezer was ready to leave. He had accomplished what he had set out to do, leave his mark on one of the 90 years of Israeli art. Eliezer was, in every way, an artist terrorist. I wasn't really a terrorist. You know, sound great because everybody calls you an artist terrorist. So you're an artist terrorist, but really it's like a dog going into a chicken coop. I mean, like, uh, is he a terrorist? No, he's not a terrorist. He just went inside. I really don't give a shit. I'm just doing what I like to do and I will continue doing it until the lights go down. But that gun-toting appearance was the last time Eliezer infiltrated an exhibition. After that, there was no real need. Museums were asking him to put on solo exhibits, and he was gaining an international reputation. Just a few short years later, in 2001, he represented Israel in the prestigious Venice Biennale. Yet, throughout his career, he told me, nothing felt as exhilarating as planting his first bottle on that museum floor. Presenting solo international shows doesn't even come close. Eliezer remains proud of the way he broke onto the scene. He believes that artists should control art spaces. Though he always felt that the high echelons of the art world were his rightful home, his natural habitat, his domain, he doesn't really feel at home with his neighbours there. To this day, he still has to work with all the people he offended with his antics, people who still think he doesn't belong. We know there are people, there are sophisticated people and there are vulgar people. There are people who are just about power and there are people who are committed and have responsibility. For the record, Eliezer, the outsider who's now on the inside, is not interested in patching things up. I'm Israeli macho sabra artist. What can you expect from me? Maybe if you go to Sweden, you will find other artists. But being in Israel and looking for Swedish art is stupid. Zev Levi. And that's our episode. As always, you can hear all our previous episodes on our site, israelstory.org, or by searching for Israel Story on iTunes and any of the other main podcast platforms. And please, if you can, rate us and write a review on iTunes. That really helps us grow. You can also follow us on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, all under Israel Story. And if you'd like to be as amazing and sponsor episodes of Israel Story, Email us at sponsor at prx.org. The original music in the Bible Code story was composed and performed by the one and only Ruth Danon. 
The episode was edited by Julie Subrin and mixed by Sela Weisblum and Aviv Meshulam. Thanks to Daniel Estrin, who did the recordings for the Sonnenschein story, to Charles Monroe Kane, Kirill Owen, and all our friends at TT Book, to Professor Hillel Furstenberg, to Rantal, and to our beloved Dima Perevoshikov. Israel Story is brought to you by PRX, the public radio exchange, and is produced in partnership with Tablet Magazine. Our staff includes Yochai Meital, Maya Kosover, Shai Satran, Roy Gilron, Zev Levi, and Aviva de Kornfeld. I'm Ishi Harman, and we'll be back very, very soon with a brand new and completely futuristic Israel Story episode. So till then, yalla bye. Yeah.